Flat Out RC time. Welcome back to the podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis and drones. My name's Andrew Sill coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia, the land of the free. COVID restrictions no more pretty much. So most of us are pretty free to roam around and get out flying, which is a great thing. So I have a bit, bit more to say about that very shortly. Uh, Good episode coming up. Uh, Norm Morris is joining me. Norm is a, a pattern guy. Um, been on the scene for a long time, so uh, stay tuned for that chat. Now, before I forget, don't forget to do all the subscribing things. Subscribe to the uh, to the Flat Out RC podcast, um, no matter what platform you're on, so you can stay up to date as to what's going on every week. Every episode comes out. There's so many people that find the podcast uh, you know, way too late and then madly start listening to all the other ones, which is good to have them on board as well. But uh, stay up to date just uh, by subscribing. And if you're in the mood for subscribing, jump onto the Flat Out RC Instagram and Facebook page and give that a like as well. Build the numbers, build the audience, which is good. Uh, so let's have a look at what's been on my mind. Now, before I get into talking about what's been on my mind, just want to remind you, two special offers, NGH Engines, a uh, special offer from RC World down here in Australia in Geelong, Victoria. Uh, Eddie Edwards kindly put together a little uh, offer for Flat Out RC listeners. It's a 10% discount off NGH Petrol Engines. That's NGH at rcworld.com.au. Uh, two stroke, four stroke range. Um, two stroke starts at 19cc, go nine cc, goes all the way up to 70cc twin, and of course the four stroke 30 to 60cc. I mentioned this before. Get onto YouTube, type in NGH 60cc four stroke or something like that. It's a it's a it's a uh, twin inline engine, and listen to the noise. It's a beautiful sound. Gotta love a good sound of sounding motor. Uh, so perfect for scale applications in a warbird or something like that. It'd be beautiful. So take a look. NGH uh, engines coming from China, like a lot of engines, but they've been in the game for a long time and their quality is really good as well. Warbird carbies, uh, you know, so some high end, high end kit. And RC World's bringing them in now, and you can get a 10%, 10% discount. Just use the code flat out NGH. That's flat, F-L-A-T-O-U-T, N-G-H, and you'll get 10% discount. So you get onto rcworld.com.au, search the uh, N-G-H engines. You can see all the range there, what they've got in stock and whatever. Add it to the cart. You'll see a coupon area. Type that code in and you'll get a 10% discount. Uh, but be quick because uh, this this opportunity is running out pretty quickly. Good chance to get something before Christmas. And so just a reminder, flat out NGH is the code, rcworld.com.au is the website. Now, speaking of Christmas, there's another special offer that's from Scale Aero Products. Scale Aero Products are a relatively new business. Peter Goff is running. Peter's been on the on the podcast a couple of times now, and he's doing a whole bunch of laser cut kits, and he's offering flat out RC listeners a 10% discount. All you need to do is get onto scaleaeroproducts.com.au, A-E-R-O-P-R-O-D-U-C-T-L. I'll say that again. Scale Aero Products, A-E-R-O-P-R-O-D-U-C-T-S, products, aero products, .com.au. Use the code FLATOUT10, FLATOUT10, not T-E-N, but just the, the, the numbers 10 at the end, so FLATOUT10. Get a 10% discount on the entire range of laser cut kits, uh, and there's everything there. 
If you want a glider, they've got it. You want an old timer, they've got it. If you want a warbird, yep, got that as well. So plenty and plenty of kits to choose from. I suggest you go and jump onto scaleaeroproducts.com.au, take a look at the range, and don't forget 10% off all kits using the code FLATOUT10, FLATOUT10. So thank you to both Scale Aero Products and RC World for those special offers just for you. I'm getting no kickbacks from them. Happy to help them out because they're a good bunch of people. So there you go. Don't forget, support them. Now, what's been on my mind? Well, I was thinking with things starting to open up down here in Australia, especially down here in Victoria and New South Wales that have been cooped up for a while under COVID restrictions, we're getting out flying. The good weather's coming. Uh, we've had a pretty wet time down here where I am. Uh, I noticed for the people in the US, they're starting to get some snow as well. We're actually still getting some snow. Uh, I was fortunate to get up to the country to do some fire prevention work on the house that I got up in the country. And uh Yep, I could see snow on the top of the, some of the peaks uh, after a bit of a downpour. So, uh, and I think they're still forecasting some snow that could potentially fall uh, in the coming week. So, uh, getting a bit late for it, I, I would have thought. But uh, weather's getting better here. Um, some really good flyable days. And I just want to talk about getting out and about with your aero modelling. That if you're the kind of aero model that just sort of sticks to your own flying club. I reckon you need to just break those barriers and go and visit some other clubs. And what you find is most clubs are really accommodating to, to visitors. And one of the things I love to do is to get out into the country regions, get out of the city and get into the country and go to the country clubs because they are so much fun. Actually, I've been very honest and said that I would much prefer to go and fly at a country club than at my local club. And I think it's basically because there's less people. And when there's less people, there's sort of a bit more of a calming sort of environment and that kind of thing. And and here in Australia, we're very fortunate. We've got plenty of space. Uh, but we do have to travel a while. So I can travel three hours in one direction to get to the Bensdale Club, which I may be visiting shortly. Great club out there at Bensdale. Tony Wilson's been on the podcast before, but uh, he's the secretary out there and they do a great job. It is a, uh, a, a VMAA state field. So all we MAAA members and whatever can rock on down and have some fun. Um, Atruka, Ararat, um, so this is stuff in my, my state. But um, no doubt wherever you live, uh, both in Australia or abroad, that um, there, there are clubs out there that you might need to travel to that you may not have been there. Now, what do I like about doing that? Well, first of all, I've learned a lot by getting out of my comfort zone of my own club. You know, you turn up to your club, you know, every weekend and you see the same people and generally flying the same aircraft or variations that, you know, you get to know their whole fleet after a while. And, you know, and you, you can learn a lot from your, your local club members as well. But sometimes getting out there and putting yourself in a different environment broadens your whole horizon in the hobby and um, what models to fly, how to fly, little tips and tricks and things like that. And I've always really enjoyed that just to see something else. I, I do get bored easily. And there's nothing like jumping in the car. And I do I do love a road trip by myself. I do like getting in the car, putting the radio on. I listen. To, I do listen to podcasts, not the flat-out RC one, because I've heard that before. Well, I've heard everyone, actually. Fancy that. But I listen to different podcasts. And um, it, it's just my domain. Hook the trailer up to the back of the, the, the car, and then off I go for a two-and-a-half-hour drive one way, which I'm fine with. Um, and see some friends, have a bit of a chat, different environments, see some different models. Um, I, I do love going to events as well, but um, even, you know, I can go up to, to some clubs on a Saturday and there'll be two people there. And and often there are two people that 
I've said, hey, I'm coming up and they're friends of mine or something. So there might be three of us at the field to, to ourselves. And generally the, the country club's got a lot of room, a lot of space. And there's something about space. I like having space. It's, it's a calming thing when you have space. And a lot of the more suburban clubs just don't have that that kind of outlook. Uh, unfortunately, the club that I'm a member of isn't too, too bad because it's sort of on the fringe of being in the country kind of thing. It's not sort of surrounded by buildings. But, um, but yeah, so just encouraging you, get out of the comfort zone. We are free to roam. Uh, get in the car, pack a few models, and just turn up to a local club. A good thing is you can get onto the websites. Most clubs have got websites now. And just tell them that you're coming. Um, stick to their rules. Remember, when you're in their at their field you have to stick to their rules so make sure that if you if you need to know you know which way to fly off where to pit where to park your car all those kind of stuff um just ask one of the the the, the members and they'll probably point you in the right direction then you're often flying like everybody else so uh get out there break the bound get out of the country visit a different club Now, enough of my yapping. Now it's time for my favourite part of the podcast. And I actually was doing a bit of research on, on aeromodeling podcasts, and I'm one of the only podcasts that really focuses on guests. There's other podcasts for flight model flying that sort of have a bunch of mates there, and now and again they'll invite somebody in to have a chat. But um, mine's very much um, about sharing people's story in aeromodeling, and that's why I say it doesn't necessarily need to be the you know a Jace Ducier that's very well known in the hobby or, a, you know, a, a Gurno Brookman or Martin Pickering, which are always great, a good bunch of guys to talk to, but uh, um, just the everyday modeler. And uh, we have kind of an everyday modeler joining us today, and that is Norm Morrish, Storm and Norman, as I refer to him behind his back, actually. I will tell him in front of his face. Uh, but anyway, Norm um, is very well known amongst the pattern flying community, especially here in Victoria, and I think he's actually helped out with some world champ events and stuff like that um, in attendance. And, uh, but he's, he's a good guy uh, that's very, very passionate and very big into just helping people in the hobby as well. He's a member of my, my local club. I talk about my club a bit, but my club's massive. He's got 170 members. It's one of the biggest clubs going around in, in, in Australia. So no doubt there's going to be people there that will be good fodder for the podcast. And, um, you know, I thought about Norm because he, he he's, you know, he's been around on the scene for a long time. So hearing his story would be great. So, Let's just get into it. Here's my chat with Stormin Norm Morrish. It's time to have a man that I, I refer to you, Norm, as Stormin Norman. Uh, but uh, I've got Norm Morrish joining me. And I'll tell you what, we're going to be covering a lot of ground here. I can just tell. Norm Morrish, thanks for joining me on the Flat Out RC podcast. My pleasure, Andrew. Well, Norm, you, you celebrated your birthday the other day. Do you want to tell people how old you are now? Uh, look, I'm just a wee bit older than a boy, Andrew. That is <laughs> Only true. Only a wee bit older. Um, yes, I hit um, 76, which one of my mates said, hey, you're starting your final quarter in life. And I stopped and thought, and I thought, hey, I'm going to play my final quarter as hard as Melbourne did in their grand final. So... I'm going to keep up my nuclear-powered geriatric status throughout the uh, next 20 years. So watch out, guys. I can vouch for your enthusiasm because I see you down at the field and, you, and you've always got a pep in your step. So you, you're doing really well. And 
and you had a bit of a, a, a heart scare as well. But you, it's amazing uh, how you bounced back. It was like a blip on the radar, and that's about it. Well, that's all it was, mate. Look, I went in thinking, oh, yeah, this is a bit of a wuss thing. Um, however, yes, they did within a couple of hours of being there because um, uh, what happened, I was uh, servicing equipment down at the field. I got the uh, attack and rang my uh, doctor, who put uh, they put me straight through to his nurse. She said, don't be a stubborn bugger like your old man, Norm. Go to hospital. Well, as soon as I hung up and ready to ring triple O, I belched and I'd had some uh, fast food and I thought, oh, you idiot, it's only indigestion. So I packed up and drove home feeling quite okay. When I got home, I missed call. So I rang my uh, uh, missed call from the nurse. So I rang and she said, which hospital are you in, Norm? And I said, I'm in my lounge room chair. Mm. Wow. <laughs> the air turned blue, Andrew. Mm. And so she soon said, at this time on a Friday night, we can't do any tests. You get to hospital. So off I went by ambulance feeling very uh, uncomfortable because I'm using up their resources. But sure enough, heart attack. And uh, I thought, oh, I'll be out in a couple of days. This is only a little bit of a thing. But when they did uh, the angiogram and found that my main blockages were in the main artery, which they called the widow maker, the cardiologist says, you're going nowhere, Norm. So open heart surgery and four new bits of plumbing. And it's surprising the human body, Andrew, um, they said, oh, we'll take a vein out of your left arm. I, first thing I said, bloody hell, no, you're not. I said, I've got to use my thumbs for flying models. <laughs> yeah, of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that was it. And, uh, oh, no, no, you, you have two veins down your arm, so one's a spare. And the same with your leg. There's two veins down each leg. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so they ripped a bloody vein out of each leg and other parts of my body. And, um, yeah, so, yeah, it was a bit of an operation. But within a couple of months, I bounced back and I was very lucky. It didn't really damage my heart. And I'm back to my nuclear power geriatric status. Well, you're doing well. Yeah. Now, and, and you do, you, you're still very, very active in aero modeling, but where did your journey in aero modeling, modeling begin? Because I'm, it, it, look, I ask everybody this question because I think it's a logical place to start, but it's actually the, the question I love uh, loved to ask the most is how did you get started in all this? Oh, very easily. My, um, when we moved from, I was born in Warburton up in the beautiful Yarra Valley, and, um, I was really cutting up when I, we moved down into the city of Dandenong. And uh, so my parents bought me a control line model back in about 1957. And I've been hooked ever since. Really? 1957? Yeah. So 1957. There we are, Andrew. Gee, you're, an, you're old enough to be my dad. The, <laughs> the, What's your name? I don't remember. <laughs> I'll get a DNA test. The um, so what was that model like? Did you have to build that model, or you know what was it? No, there was a guy in Danny Nong um, that built models, and they bought it out of the shop as a little control line stunter. However, the um, little push pull 
uh, and bell crank was a little bit stiff, so it, it what didn't live a long time. And then I built ramrods and uh, stilettos and spitfires and all of that. And I was very lucky. Um, my parents' property uh, backed onto oh, about a 50-acre park. So Dad cut a gate in the back fence, and I used to walk out there, and I had my own little pool system to be able to fly the control liners there on my own. And you know, Andrew, in nowadays, if somebody was out in your back, just at the back of your house, flying an unmuffled aeroplane, mm-hmm. the police and everybody would be involved. But throughout five years of flying control line, never had a complaint. Amazing. Isn't that interesting that, you know, that we always say, you know, oh, the good old days, but when you think about it, they probably were really good days. You know, it, life was simpler back then, wasn't it? Oh, yes. Look, um, that's a topic all on its own because I'm a uh, qualified engineer and saw the intro of computers and the brick mobile phones and fax machines. When I first started with Nissan back in 78, they they had a fax machine to do an A4 back to Japan. Mm. And I said, wow, if only we could have that sort of thing between all industries in um, Australia would make it much easier. Never thought they'd end up in your home and now a fax machine is extinct. That's true. So uh, it's just, anyway, separate topic, but just an unbelievable um, progress. Um, I've seen it all. Yeah. Now, even So I always find it fascinating that we know that back back in that era, control line was a, was a pretty popular thing. And, and we often, you know, people always talk about how they saw other people at the local park flying it and that sort of got them intrigued and they ended up asking their parents to get them one. But the fact that you kept on going, because there were a lot of people that would have owned a control line plane. I've been a lot of people say, oh, yeah, when I was a kid, I used to have a control line plane, but after that, I didn't do anything. And that break, fixed cycle, you didn't have ARFs and foamies and all that kind of stuff. You must oh, have been... you certainly did. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah. You must have yes. been pretty passionate to keep on going and building models. Oh, well, look, mate, um, ether was a really high-smelling thing in which we used to put in, go to the chemist shop to get the bottles of ether so you could, um, you know, run your little diesels. And, man, oh, man, if you went in there nowadays asking for it, you'd be uh, <laughs> walked out by the police. So, um, anyway, yes. Those were certainly days, but um, of course, then along came um, girlfriends, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and uh, a little bit of a that put uh, control line. Uh, unfortunately, in the control line, I never went into state competition, so I never got to meet Tony Farnham and Monty Tyrrell um, in that or Johnny Crockett in those days. Um, but a bit later in life. Um, I lived in Roval, which was only about 3K from the Dandenong Aero Club that uh, Mel Caesar started up in 1966. And uh, that was a breakaway from the Marks Club. And uh, I happened to take a, a trailer load of rubbish down to a tip that was 
just beside where the uh, that model field was. And I saw them, and that was it. Oh. Radio control, I was hooked. And there was a guy by the name of Frank Lacey, a, a famous man in the uh, speed speed car in uh, game, and he was flying an aerobatic model with retracts. Oh, well, what year was this? That hook, that hook, hey? What year was that? Uh, that was in 1973. Okay, year I was born. <laughs> well, you're a young lad, Andrew. Yeah, I was a young lad when you started <laughs> flying RC. So, so okay, so and so you would have in that era. What was it? Craft radio sets would have been popular then. Were they? Were they in vogue? Uh, uh, yes. Look. Um, so I quickly uh, got involved, uh, asked questions, and Fataba and Silverstone up in Sydney, and Craft with Barry Angus down in uh, Geelong. Um, they were the main uh, runners, and I tried both Kraft and Futaba in the early days and um, became very good mates with the notorious Barry Angus from uh, Kraft Systems, and um, he was an avid pylon racer and uh, aerobatic guy like I was. And, um, and John McGrain, he worked with uh, Barry, and those guys were absolute characters. And also one of our um, esteemed gentlemen in the club, Normie Parker, he was also a mate of those two guys. And Normie play, plays drums and a very, very good drummer. And he played with all of the vaudeville people like uh, Murray Fields, Macca Fitzgibbon and uh, and, of course, if ever you get a good chance to talk to Normie, he's still got that vaudeville um, uh, cheekiness and um, character about him. It's just magnificent. So, anyway, that's, that, that's it. So I've got to verify something because last week's podcast I had Rolly Gowman on. And he was surprised. Oh, yeah, Rolly. Yeah, yeah in know, Manoa. Yeah, yeah uh, you know Rolly yep. well. And anyway, Rolly oh, was... I know Rolly very well. <laughs> Rolly was telling me how when he first came to Australia and was started flying, he couldn't believe how people were sort of having a beer whilst they were flying down at the police paddocks oh. down here. Was that, was that true? <laughs> oh, oh um, look, um, yes. <laughs> and when, when it was a shocker. We were known as the Beer Club and we're also known, well, the Push Pots Club, and we're also known as the um, the Fairlane Club because the Fairlanes in those days, 74, 75, and that had huge boots. So they were mobile hangers. And uh, we would go away for weekends, Wodonga and uh, um, Wagga Wagga and Echuca, and You'd start drinking at 10 o'clock on a Friday morning when you left the um, Bayswater pub where we all would meet. <laughs> and how the hell we ever survived those sort of three-day weekends away. We had very understanding wives, I think, Andrew. <laughs> so, yes, Rolly was correct. Mel Caesar was a shocker for drinking and flying, but he was a lovable, a lovable character. Same was Monty Terrell. Yeah. 
It's funny how, how that just does not exist. There's not like a drinking culture around, you know, model oh. flying. Sometimes after hours at an event or something like that, but not at the flying field and, you know, have a beer and have a fly at the same time. But um, well, I found that look, quite funny. I, yeah, look, I'll tell you one uh, very appropriate story and it came to light again um, at this year's Monty Tyrrell when – Monty's son and granddaughter came down to do the presentation. That's Were nice. you there then, Andrew? I was there, yes. Yeah, well, that was a that was a real memorable occasion. However, um, we were doing a um, a weekend trip up to uh, Wodonga for a fly-in, and Monty and his mate Eddie Keegan decided they would do a, 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 a the trip via the Rutherglen wineries. Well, by the time they arrived at the field, they certainly weren't in the condition to get models out late in the uh, the evening. We got back to our motel and we had barbecue and a great, great get-together as we did. And uh, later in the evening, and I don't know whether you've ever heard this story or uh, the uh, nickname, but um, anybody seen Monty? Gee, no, no. So somebody went back to his room and, no, he wasn't there and started searching around and then somebody found him. He was in the toilet and he was driving the porcelain bus and the the lid came down and got him around the neck and he was trapped. He couldn't move. He couldn't move. He couldn't get away from it and he was there, (laughs) I I would say, for half an hour. So... From then, Monty Tyrrell, the famous Monty Tyrrell, the VH13 man, wore the nickname Horse Collar Monty. (laughs) 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 And I was talking to Dean, his son, at at the Monty Tyrrell day, and uh, Monty said, uh, and uh, Dean says, I remember that, Norm, you guys calling him Horse Collar. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're digressing a bit there. Uh, That's all right, uh, Andrew. Well, let's bring it back. So then, you you saw the radio control stuff, right? Yes. And then, what you found the nearest hobby shop, or you went to the club and said, "Okay, I need to get into this." And what was your next step? What did you What did you go and buy? Uh, and what okay. did you fly? Look, with um, D and Darks. Um, the hobby hanger down there, Tony Sincotta and Jim Davey and Jerry Muzzin were all members of uh, D and Darks, and they were Futaba Australia. So that's how I got into it. And there was another man um, that had Heather Hill hobbies. He was an ex-market gardener, a Keith Follett, and. He was unbelievable. So he steered me in the direction of building a hustler, which I did. And we came out of the October 73 meeting, which we met in the um, uh, the Aero Club at uh, Moravian Airport. So it it was very good for the Dean Darks Club because it had a bar that went all... (laughs) Until we'd finished. And uh, we came out at about 10, 10.30 or whatever. And Keith looked up and he says, oh, Norm, he says, this is going to be a magnificent morning in the morning. Meet me down the field at 5.30 and we'll maiden your new model. Mm. Wow. 
I went home. I was worse than a kid waiting for Christmas. I never slept. I'm down there five o'clock in the morning and got the model. Now, how the hell we got away with flying a HP-40 at 5.30 in the morning, not so far <laughs> from neighbours, beats me, Andrew. Once again, very tolerant neighbours. Yep. However, um, Keith was a fantastic uh, tutor and he set the model up beautiful. So I started to fly and oh, this is easy. So I started doing loops and immelmans. And before the the morning's lesson was out, I did my own solo takeoff and landings. And uh, that was bad because the next morning I woke up and I thought, I'm going out there on my own. I can, I bloody can do solo. So out I went, 5.30 in the morning, took off and I mustn't have had the wing with the rubber bands on the right place and it would not do what it did the morning before. Mm. As a result, I pulled the throttle back, watched it land out in the scrub somewhere and it took me two hours to find it. That incident put me back about three months before I got back to the confidence of the very first morning. So yes, that, that was my intro to... Um, to radio. Well, that's amazing how you, you pretty much took to it quite naturally. Uh, yes, yes, I was lucky. I've been lucky right throughout my uh, modelling career. Yeah. Now, fast-forwarding a little bit because you've been quite involved in competition and, and you mentioned to me off-air that you got into pylon racing. Now, and well, pylon racing and then and, and aerobatics, of course. When did that sort of start to come in? Because you're saying 73, you sort of got back into it. At what point did you move into, you know, some of the other stuff? Uh, look, in 74, um, Mel Caesar and quite a few of us went up to the Loxton Nats, and uh, that was my first real intro. I can't remember exactly what I flew up there, but um, uh, the Monty Tyrrell was up there with his control line flying fortress, and remember it was that bloody hot. We're all down under the willow trees on the uh, Murray River, and next minute Monty's floating his uh, aeroplane down there to see if it was making a good seaplane. <laughs> <laughs> but I, that, that again was alcohol induced. <laughs> and uh, anyway, but after that, I got. I was very lucky to uh, one of our members had bought a uh, a northerner, which is an aerobatic 60 size, that John McGrain had designed. It was very similar to Ron Chidgley's um, Tiger Tail, designed in 1971. Uh, the fuselage was very similar, but had completely different uh, wing shape and um wing section, so did the stab. Anyway, I was very lucky to find one, uh, to you know, find a guy that was getting rid of that. And that kicked me off in aerobatics big time. Mm. And I was very, very lucky because in those days, our club in Dandenong was right beside the Monash Freeway. And then in came in about 77 or something, the CB radio, uncontrolled. So here we'd be out flying and down comes a truck. Hey, big buddy, come in. You know, and all of a sudden our planes are <laughs> going everywhere in the sky. 
And my northerner was lucky to survive all of that time. And uh, it wasn't skill. It was just luck that that didn't hit the ground and die from the CB interference. However, um, yes, that model um, became, the fuselage became fuel log. And so I rebuilt the fuselage and um, I had the rudder from it and uh, still in one of my drawers. And uh, that model is still flying now. And it's a magnificent plane. Robin Trump from Germany, a very uh, experienced and uh, top uh, F3A guy, came out here in 2017 and he flew it. Um, and it was just amazing what he did with that. And I got him to personally sign the model. So that model of actually leaving in my will to Gleno because it's a there, there's no other classic aerobatic plane like that northerner. So it yeah. it was just and it actually um, flew. I was it really flew well with a Weber speed and um, and I was I was. Uh, lucky enough to be able to fly it pretty well. And we went across in 76 all the way to Bunbury, Mel Caesar, Wally Shoeback, Roger Carrick, Brian Dart, and uh, we went over there to compete at the Nats. And that was a three-day drive yeah, and another three-day back. Oh, huge. But we, we vowed before we got started that we weren't going to have much alcohol because we wouldn't uh, survive the trip. <laughs> Anyway, I was very, I was very lucky over there to have won the. Uh, there was two classes of aerobatics in those days: novice and expert. And uh, Barry Angus was over there, and anyway, I won the novice, and I won some pylon and whatever. And Tom Prosser wasn't there, so I was very lucky because Tom always took out the champ of champions at the uh, the uh, the nationals. But because he wasn't there, I actually took it out. So that was a real big thing <laughs> in, uh, in in Christmas '76. So um, anyway, um, at that Barry said, "Oh Norm, the way you're flying," he said, "We're going to have the very first Masters Aerobatics in Camperdown in March, and I want you to attend." And he also said that to Teddy Rivett. So, oh, the two of us were were blown away. So we got out there and regularly uh, practised, getting ready for the very first Masters. We're now up to about the 47th Masters, I think. However, um, a month later, Barry rang and says, oh, Norm, we're really sorry, but... Um, I've been advised you've never won anything in the expert class. I said, that's correct. He says, so I'm, I'm inviting you and Ted to come as invitees. But if you take a place, you can't officially take that place. Oh, that's fair enough. We'd just be so happy and proud to be involved. Well, I took out third and Ted took out fifth. <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was unofficial. So, And if you had have told me, Andrew, that for 1977, yeah, 45 years later, I'd be still competing in Masters 
I would have said you got rocks in your head. There's no way, yeah. but I am. Yeah, that's, that's so, the amazing thing. Is it like rarely do you find some uh, people that have really focused on that one discipline for such a long period of time? I think when I think about it, you're the only person that I've interviewed that has stuck out with continuing down that discipline like pattern flying for such a long period of time. What is what what drew you to aerobatics and keeps you going? Uh, th- look, that's an excellent question, Andrew. Um, every two years, the schedule gets changed. So you might think, oh, I'm just getting on top of this one. This schedule's easy. And then, bang, they change it to another one. But, um, look, I didn't stay at it as um, strongly as a few others. I was very, very lucky in the 70s to become real good mates with Jeff Tracy from Shepparton, and he was a flamboyant character that went to all the worlds and was invited to the to the um, Tournament of Champions at Bill Bennett, who owned a couple of casinos in Las Vegas, and uh, he was the one that was organising this Tournament of Champions. So Jeff used to go over there, and then they, while he was doing that in the late 70s, Jeff, um, Bill Bennett said, uh, can you, look, these models are too fast, too small for the general public to see. What about we go to quarter scale? So Jeff brought a Canadian back out here and helped, got him to design up and build a quarter scale Cap 20L. I have one of those out in my uh, garage and um, that was the very start of the first big quarter scale models into uh, into the world. And um, yes, yeah, so I was very lucky to see that sort of progress. But anyway, at the um, nationals in Camperdown in '78, Jeff said to me, "Norm, can you please give up pylon?" and come and concentrate on Patton so you can come to the Worlds with me. He said, you'll be a fantastic team member. I said, Jeff, I'm sorry. There's too much halo factor in aerobatics. Pile on, you're against a stopwatch. So I mainly concentrated on pile on for quite a few years. And then when I... It, I ran the world championships for pylon in 87 out at Laverton. Um, that's a different story. That uh, became too much interference from a weather bureau radar. Yes, so we that. transferred. Uh, do you? Good. So we removed, uh, re- relocated to, um, La- uh, to the Point Cook Air Base. Now, uh, not going into the uh, running of the event, but there was one very funny story there um, because uh, I'd arranged, and that was in the days without mobile, so you happen to go to a phone and ring the weather bureau at Easter time, and I'd arranged that they would park the radar at a different angle away from us, and then on the hour they would run it for five minutes, so we would stop racing well that was fine luckily um the man in charge of point cook was there and, and i'd looked all else uh, all other locations on laverton couldn't find anything suitable so went down to point cook and he and that was perfect so we had that as a backup so here it is on the saturday we start racing came one o'clock 
all the models down, watching the radar and the content continue to go. So over on the phone, Weather Bureau, um, we're sorry, but we've got a big front coming through and we've got to watch it. So I straight back and I said to everybody, okay, we're relocating to Point Cook. And to which within an hour, we've relocated the cages and we're up and running. In behind it all, the Air Force have got out with their semi-trailers and their crew, um, all their crew. They've packed up the marquees. They've taken all the big drums that had the flagpoles. Everything was cleared up and within two hours was down at Point Cook, completely set up. It was amazing. So the funny story is a woman had dropped off her husband and son at the event. She came back to pick them up that evening. She pulls up at the side of the lavender and there's nothing there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there was panic everywhere, Andrew. Uh, See, nowadays we we just take that stuff for granted now. We just get on the mobile phone and say, look, I'm actually over here. But back then... There was no mobile. There was. I. I don't know how the husband and and son got there to Point Cook, mm. but uh, anyway, that was one of the funny stories. So Australia was really put on the map for how quickly we relocated, but it was all thanks to the Air Force, yeah. and, uh, and that was it. So after the eighty seven pilot worlds. Um, I said to my wife, okay, that's it. I'm pulling out of aero modelling and concentrating on investment so that by the time we're 60, we can retire and play golf and et cetera. So that's what happened. And um, I was away from aero modelling and, and our fantastic P and Darks club um, for quite a few. I came back in about 2003, I think. And when I came back, I said, pylon is too fast. It'd be like having a tiger by the tail. I'm just going to concentrate only on F3A. And uh, and that's what I did. But um, back in around about 2009, when I went to my first, or 2008, I went to my first competition, the state champs up in Bendigo, and they'd put me back a few classes and here I'm competing against a nine-year-old young James Nugent from Mildura, a protege of Glenos. Mm. And no matter how good a flight I could put in, I couldn't beat this young bloke. Well, he went on to just go boom, boom, boom up into the top class. And by 2011, I'm still back in about expert, I think. He's on the Australian team as our junior and went to Muncie in America and he got the, there was uh, Steve Coram, uh, Paul Dart and uh, Glenno uh, as our team and young James took out the highest score for any, any of the Australians. Really? And so we, um, he was just amazing. We're very lucky right at this moment. We've got another amazing young bloke, and that's Harrison Ritter. He's got a real natural talent. And um, so I've been spending quite a bit of time and dollars in supporting him and setting up aeroplanes and um, 
so that um, he'll be able to uh, go in, a comp in the Masters next year to uh, try and get on the Australian team for the 2023 Worlds, which are being held up in um, Casino. Yeah, that's yes, going to be great. Casino. That's going to be a good event. So, yeah. So that's a... That's a real highlight for me to be working with young H to be um, coaching him to uh, to make the team. Well, Harrison uh, listens to this podcast and he's been on the podcast before, Harrison. And we're just yeah, yes, and the other boys, yes, yep. Belint and Cameron. Yep. Yep. And I'm, Good I'm, on you, Andrew, for doing that. We get on the simulator together now and again and uh, we're just trying to get Harrison out of his uh, foamy fetish at the moment and spend more time with the pattern planes, but... COVID hasn't been friendly to it to us, has it, over the past uh, sort of couple of years? Not, it hasn't been friendly to a lot, Andrew. It's been a very difficult time that all of us will remember in our time. That's true. It's, it's, yep. who, uh, like, I think back to 2019, I think who would have thought that we'd be in this situation that we've, you oh. know, we've been through and ever, you know, okay, look, we've, we've, we've survived through it, but, you know, we've pretty much lost close to two years of model flying and, and, I think that... Uh, what about life? What yeah. about life? To those who were getting old like me, it's a, um, and those who are, you know, in a, unfortunately, in a, um, an illness that's incurable, they've lost valuable time of yeah. their life, mate. Not just the aero modelling. But do you know what? I've even... Um, I'm 48 and... I even thought about that, you know, that there's two years of my life that I see my life as, you know, having different phases of things that I can do. So at the moment I've got into motorbike riding, you know, dirt bike riding, trail riding. And, and it's not, it's not something I'm going to be able to do maybe in 15 years time, but I've lost two years of that because um, of not being able to, to get out there, but I am going this weekend actually, but, uh, but yeah, Good so, on you. it's a bit, you know, it, it is, it is difficult, but the good news is we're back sort of, and, and I think everything, all the events will start to come back online. And I think if, you know, it's hard for some people to keep practicing when there's, there's no sort of real goal with events and that kind of thing. So I think, uh, we'll see the likes of Harrison getting out there and, and, uh, you know, a bit more stick time kind of thing. Now, back to your flying and your aerobatics. You say you came back to it in 2003. Um, and, and uh, yeah, yeah, round about then, yes. Yeah, and so you came back at an era where the planes were probably starting to change, weren't they? Uh, look, they, they certainly had because um, uh, I'll just go back one step um, before I forget about it, and that is with young Harrison and our club, it's so busy lately that um, of a weekend, it's near impossible for Harrison to be able to get two flights in with, you know, in the sky on his own because flying a valuable aeroplane, you really can't afford to be out there. So I've just joined Harrison and I up at another club nearby. So on a Saturday, there's nobody there. So we'll be able to go down and really get some solid practice in so that um, he's going to be really ready to uh, to win that title of the junior champion to represent Australia. Yeah, so, it is a lot about stick time, isn't it? Like, I've had some, some oh. gun pilots on this podcast from around the world and the amount of time they've just spent on the sticks. And uh, Rowley said this in the podcast last week where he said that he, he, he dabbled in aerobatics, but he said 
if you're going to be good at aerobatics, a flying pattern, F3A, et cetera, is that that's all you can do. You can't go and start flying gliders all the time and scale because you just every time you go out there, you just need to keep on practicing to really perfect perfect your art. Do you find that's the case? A hundred percent. And uh, I was flying today uh, down at the other club and um, there's always, and, and after you've been away for um, a few months, um, to then, or, because what happens when you're inverted and across some of the manoeuvres, the rudder corrections, and they've got to be very gentle, are usually automatic. But after such a long delay, those rudder, oh, wrong rudder. Whoops, mm. wrong rudder. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm good at doing that, and, going, uh, yep, yeah, other, yeah. other left. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yes, yes. So, um, look, there, there is. But the camaraderie in the aerobatics is fantastic. And to have met up with Glenno and um, and got involved coaching Glenno, um, seeing Bill Bloodworth fly, and what a what a fantastic guy that Bill Bloodworth is. He is the best flyer of I think I've seen in Australia and one of the nicest guys and uh, I was very privileged to go with him and Glenno and uh, Dennis Traveseros over to um, Switzerland for the world and then uh, with Glenno and uh, Matthew Bailey and uh, Dennis to Taiwan for the uh, Asian Pacific and uh, and then with Russell and um, Aaron Gall and that over to the 2019 Worlds in that Italy, they were, of course, we were going to be in uh, Muncie this year, but with COVID, so all that's dropped. However, it's there been the highlights of being able to go to those Worlds and meet up with all of the other um, top guys in F3A. And you, you don't get a chance of seeing that. And that's what's going to be good about young Harrison being able to meet all of the, the top pilots in the world. Yeah, it's true. Now, it, it, you've, you seem to enjoy that sort of mentoring kind of role. Uh, oh, that's important, mate. Yeah. You know, you, you, you know you're taking Harrison Ritter under your wing and um, – you know, Glen O, Glen Orchard. Can you please tell Glen Orchard that he should come on this podcast? I've asked him multiple times now, <laughs> and he tells me um, he tells me that he hasn't got much of a story to tell. And I'm like, yeah, if you don't have a story to tell, then you know who has. Uh, but anyway, I, I am going to try him again. Um, but at some point, well, uh, when these these. When you went overseas with these Australian teams to World Championships, yep. what was your role? Um, uh, coach for Glenno. Yeah. Were you team manager or somebody else doing that? No. Um, we had a very good team manager, David Gibbs, in um, um, uh, 2015, and... We had Joe Costa from New South Wales as our team manager for um, uh, Italy. And one of the very funny stories there was, it's not all about um, aero modelling, uh, Andrew. It's all about the, the, the good stories. And um, I think you know big Phil Spence from Canberra? 
Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to get him on the podcast. Yep. Oh, okay. Oh, well, you, you, you'll need a longer podcast time than, <laughs> than me if you had Big Phil on. Anyway, um, he and I are really good mates and we hang it on each other big time on FaceAke and and uh, the messenger, particularly the messenger group that we set up for the uh, the world's team. Anyway, we're hanging it on each other. And when we got over to Italy and Joe saw that we were only joking with each other, he was so relieved. He thought, how am I going to separate <laughs> these two guys? Yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was worried sick that he had a real problem on his hands. It's true. It's like... <laughs> It, it, it's funny with aero modeling. I always say that aero modeling is an all-encompassing thing. It's just not about building a plane or flying planes or that kind of thing. It's it's the friendships and the stories that we we amass over the years. I, I've said to the young guys that we know at our club, you know, I said, guys, what you need to think about is if you guys keep on flying, you'll know each other for most of your lives and imagine the amount of stories you're going to be able to tell each other when you're 80 years of age hanging out at the club. It's like you know, value that. It's an important thing and uh, an important part of your hobby that will keep you going as well and you'll get a lot of enjoyment out of it like you have. So it's, um, uh, yeah, look, it, lots of good yeah, stories. It, it, yeah, look, my my highlight would have, I don't know whether it's the fact that um, in 2019 I actually uh, got promoted up into the master's class, which is the top class of F3A, up there with Glenno and Bill Bloodworth and them. And at 75, to get promoted up into that class with all of – I don't know whether you've ever seen my hands, but they're badly distorted with rheumatoid arthritis. So mm. I happen to be lucky that I fly thumbs on top of the stick. So – the other fingers distorted and everything don't stop me from from flying. So that was a real highlight to be able to get promoted up into that class. And um, but the other one was I, I spoke about the northerner and um, John McGrane is a real good mate of Normie Parker and and me. And um, he was dying of cancer. And I had this rudder uh, in one of the boxes. I thought, I'll get that out. And I got the craft sticker out and I put that on it and I I made up a little computerised um, plaque to go on the side of the northerner that was designed and built by John O. McGrain in 1972, etc. So I put that sticker on the side of the rudder and on the other side I said, thanks, Macca, for designing the mag." Uh, the Norther, it's still magnificent to fly. And I took that down as a get well card to him. It brought a tear to his eye. Yeah. And um, the and I also had um, checked, uh, got approval from Alice, his wife, to be able to bring the Northerner down and bring it into the lounge room so he could see it from his bed. And, oh, his eyes lit up. Anyway, when he passed away, we're at the funeral and the grandkids are bringing up little tributes to put on the coffin and up came the Northerner Rudder and mm. went on the coffin. After that, um, the family asked me, could I spread his ashes with the Northerner? Oh, wow. So I quickly got out 
and that had short retract legs on it. So I had to design up a special box to go under the wing. And I didn't hesitate drilling a hole through the wing to put a, um, a servo lead through. Did test with the sand and, yep, got it all spreading out. Right, so down to Dog Rocks we go with the family and Normie Parker. And uh, uh, Brian Green and Stephen Green were down there because they'd been friends with the McGrains for a long time. Anyway, so we've got the um, we've got the Northerner all set up, and I said, well, um, we'll do a few flights to spread his ashes so that the various families can flick the discharge hatch switch. And um, so I'm flying away and I did aerobatics. So here's Macca being flown in his own designed and built aircraft and uh, did all the various aerobatics. Came time to spread his ashes over Dog Rocks Field in Geelong and uh, nothing came out. Oh, because it's lighter than the sand. So a bit of an incline and... Uh, out they came all over the, so it was very successful. So I did an Emmelman, flew away and came, landed, we reloaded. I gave it to Normie to um, fly and have the uh, elder daughter flick the switch. And I said, now you've got to climb for it, Normie. So up he climbs and out, he did some aerobatics as well for Macca. And he's climbing and out come the ashes. Normie continued to do a loop. Well, when he landed, here's these ashes all oh, over the wing. No. <laughs> oh, well, so Macca, uh, Normie looked at me and he says, well, Macca, if you weren't dead, you are now. <laughs> thought, oh, it was a shock. But anyway, to me, that was one of the highlights of my aero modelling, mate. Um, yeah. That, that's a great That's um, a great story. I really, uh, that, that was a good one. I think that... Um, it just shows you how how much error modeling can mean to people. That when when yeah. they pass away, like you know, we lost Brian Winch uh, what a couple of years ago, maybe now, and um, you know, he he had a life in aero modeling and playing around with the engine and stuff like that, and that's what he was known for. He, he you know his his life in a way was defined around his aero modeling um, activity, and I think that. Um, yeah, it's a touching little uh, little story there that uh, you know he was able to be spread over the dog rocks. The only problem is the dog rocks field doesn't exist anymore now. They've had to, uh, that's, they've had to that's move the right. club. Uh, but, um, uh, but 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 we didn't know that. However, true. not yeah, not all of the ashes got spread, so the family still has does have some special yeah. uh, places to be able to go and play. Pay respects to Macca. My auntie always says that she wants to get her ashes spread out of an air, light light aircraft over Port Phillip Bay here, and I and my brother's a pilot, so I said I could just see it now. We'll take you up, and we'll say, okay. I'll turn around to my brother and say, Michael, we're going to dump it now. He goes, yeah, yep. Yeah. He opens a little window or something and we start tipping ashes out and the ashes end up in the back seat of the aeroplane. They're stuck on the wings. And I said, so I said to my auntie, like, you could end up anywhere from the back seat to the middle row of the seat to in the, I don't know, it's going to be all over in the hinges. Oh, I don't know what's going to happen. I, said, I don't think we can just guarantee that it's just going to fall straight down. Yeah, no, mate, you're not supposed to think that way. Yeah. Um, uh, another um, two um, highlights um, now going back to Pylon, was um, we used to go to Kihuna up near Echuca, uh for our Ampera Championships. And um, anyway, I had a quarter midget 
It was quite a good one with a Rossi 15 in it and uh, and a good FAI uh, Minuteman that um, Graham Pentland of uh, Geelong had designed. And um, anyway, Leo Riley from Leo Riley, uh, oh, uh, Riley Model Products, yeah. OM, um, we used to give us a goodie bag. Anyway, I'm there a day early and got, got the goodie bag, and in there was a little APC 8.4 propeller. And we were carving all our own wooden ones and everything. And I don't know what made me think, and I thought, I'm going to put this on the Rossi and just see how it goes. Holy cow, it went from just a pylon racer to a missile. Really? It was so I thought, okay, I'm not going to fry it anymore because people will see and want to see what I'm flying. So I waited and kept it down on the ground until um, the actual race meeting, and it well and truly won the race just <laughs> by a fluke of getting a, um, a prop out of Leo's goodie bag. Um, the other one was um, back in about 82, um, Tony Farnham came up to me. He said, Norm, he says, I love the the way that you fly a pylon circuit. He said, we've got a new OS40 pylon just come into Australia. It's the first one in the world. Can you fit it up to a model and see what you think? So, yeah, certainly. So he and his uh, mechanic, Graham Rice, came over and we fitted up, went down the field. I said, wow, how much is this? Oh, only about $130 out of the box. And... People were paying $700 for the Rangy modified uh, reworked motors, the OPSs and all of that. And I thought, well, what a good shot in the arm this thing will be for um, modelling. So um, off we we went down the field. That stage it was <coughs> still dead. <coughs> oh, no, Dandenong Field was still available to use. And although we'd moved to Pakenham and uh, went down there and I said, well, this is going to take 15 or 20 seconds off the time. This is really good. So, yep, got it all ready, went up to the Kahuna event and um, there were about seven or eight of these rangy OPSs and I came in second, beating most of them. And uh, so, yeah, that was a really good write-up. So the next event is, and this was just at the time that we were changing from the larger FAI models to the um, smaller scale ones, yeah. like the Mistaras and the Little Tonys and all of that. And uh, I had a, a beautiful Mistara. No, no, I had a smaller, um, a smaller Minuteman. So I fitted it up to that, and the next race was at Lilydale. So Graham and uh, Tony are over there to see how well this new pylon motor, whether it could repeat what it did at Kihuna. And uh, anyway, we took off. I did one trim flight, and normally I fly with a bit of down trim, so I'm not having to push down to go down under models to overtake them. And um, anyway... We did one trim flight, and I thought, well, we'll go up for a second one, and I'll just finish trimming it. So we got the motor revving away and about to take off, and the CD, there was a light aircraft come over the Lilydale one. Everybody shut off their motors and stay 
on the ground for a few minutes. So we did. With pylon, you don't have any throttles, just wham, bam, away she goes. And um, anyway, got the all clear to take off. So I hit the motor and away she's screaming. I give the nod to Graham and off the model goes. It's not switched on. Graham had switched the thing off. Oh, no. Normally, I would... Normally, I would fly with a little bit of down trim and it would have just gradually lifted the tail and ran into the long grass on the other side. Not oh, this one. No. It just cleared, just cleared the grass on the other side of the strip and off it went. A 300-odd kilometre an hour free flight. 35,000 revs and it's just going into the distance out over Warburton or wherever it oh, went, we thought. No. Anyway, the thing kept going. My wings were perfectly level. We could hear it and we could see this silver glitter a mile up in the air, we reckon. And that thing came and did one huge loop. Came and at, at that stage, everybody had to land and uh, get there, be prepared. And the thing went vertically in oh, only about 200 metres from the strip over beside the banks of the uh, Yarra River. So sheepishly over went Tony Farnham and Graham with a shovel and dug it out. They came back and for some reason I still had the model that I'd used up at Kihuna without a motor in. I don't know why. So back they came and I started fiddling with the motor and cleaning it all. And they said, we think this is okay. So put it back into the model I used at Kihuna and I pulled the fastest time of the day after this thing had been two foot into the ground, <laughs> that is a, that that is amazing. Like I just got this oh. vision of the 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 stress and the despair of watching this model just go. Oh, okay, I got no control. <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> oh, mate, you should have. I don't know what sort of missile it was, no, but it was a missile. I do not you know. know. Like you're supposed to check your stuff before you take off. Oh, yes. Well, we had, you know, none of off for a minute, but to uh, for I wasn't aware that the mechanic had turned the bloody thing off anyway. that My model wasn't usable after that. No, I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. Now, spe speaking of models, you know, do you enjoy yeah. building models or, you know, is it you're building to fly? Yeah, I'm building a 1971 uh, Tiger Tail because I had one of those in the earlier days. And uh, and they're very much like my uh, northerner. I've got uh, Jeff Tracy's 1978 design squirrel, so that'll give me three classics. Um, I bumped into a guy up in Queen in Queensland who happens to have John McGrain's latest design of the northerner, and uh, it's a bit knocked about, but I'm giving that off him and rebuilding it. That's going to be a uh, a real uh, uh, nice model to um, get get on the fleet as well. And um, I've got four F3As. I've got um, a uh, an oxide-built um, accuracy bike that was Glenno's. Uh, that's got a Contra, uh, had to run Contra drive in it. Then I bought a leader bike, which is what Onda designed and flew, and that's the first series, and uh, that's got the Adver run in it. And now uh, 
over at the Masters in Barossa Valley, my other accuracy bike went off the air and, and crashed over in the grapevines. Luckily, it didn't destroy any vines, but it certainly destroyed the model. So I bought the latest version of the leader, uh, again built by Yang, which is the Oxeye ones. Very expensive airframes, but gee, they're worth it. So I've built that over the, uh, the lockdown time, ready, and it's now ready to test fly. And I came across another very nice monoplane, which is perfect for Harrison. So I bought it and I've done it up as well, ready for Harrison to uh, have as a backup to his uh, uh, mono um, plane that he's flying at the moment that his parents bought him. So, uh, yeah, so we've got quite a few aerobatic uh, planes in the fleet. Have you ever ventured into any other... Um sort of styles of flight, gliding or scale or anything like that, or you just purely stuck to the aerobatics? Uh, it, look, pylon and aerobatics were a full-time on their own. Yes, I do have glides and gliders. I did have a scale twin 310 Cessna, oh, but cool. yes, and it was built by the um, Norm Savage, one of our pioneer members of the club, and uh, but... The trouble is with scale, it's just mainly circuits and everything. So that didn't keep me that fired up. Same as the turbine jets. I, uh, I'd i love to have a, an F-86 Sabre, but um, once again, you're still only basically doing the circuits. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm very much like you. I'm a... I... I'm a diehard aerobatics man because of that. Like nothing against people that want to go and fly circuits, but um, I do two circuits. And I, I, I've got a turbine jet, a Viper jet. And in my maiden flight, I'd planned out, you know, just to keep it gentle, first time flying a turbine or whatever. But Norm, I had to throw in some aerobatic manoeuvres because I started getting bored flying the circuits <laughs> in the maiden flight. So I threw in a couple of things. I went, oh, that's all right. And you know what? My Viper jet flies, I, I say it flies like a heavy F3A plane. That's what it flew like. It felt like a heavy F three A plane, but um, but yeah, it it, it is. I, I I agree with you. But um, yeah, it's still just amazed at how many years you just continued with it. Now, over your time of um competing in aerobatics, that kind of thing, who would you rate as one of the best pilots out of Australia that you've seen fly? In you know, including um, all the eras, Jeff Tracy, without a doubt, um, Peter Goldsmith, and. Uh, young James Nugent and um, and Bill Bloodworth. I'm a bit disappointed my name didn't appear in that list. Uh, North. <laughs> Sorry, Andrew. Uh, and so will Glenno. Glenno yeah. will be, but but uh, no, Glenno. We were we were out flying last Sunday, and uh, and Glenno has not lost the neck. He's got a very good pair of thumbs, but um, no. The best, uh, without a doubt, to me was um, um, Billy Bloodworth, Jeff Tracy, and uh, this young James Nugent. So once we see Harrison really getting into it, I expect that uh, he'll become a real natural. That's if girls don't come along and get in the road. That's the problem, Norm. As you know, you <laughs> succumb to that pressure. Uh, you know. You, 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 you didn't get into cars as well at the same time because it seems to be a trait here amongst aero modelers that uh, girls and cars 
pull people away from the hobby for a period of time until they get over that and get married and come yeah, back. Well, yes, look, I think from about 17 through to 27, there was a 10-year period of cars and and uh, education, all of that. that um, but anyway, I was very lucky to get qualified in mechanical engineering and, and uh, have a career that um, has allowed me to retire comfortably. Which is so good to where hear. I can enjoy all. Yeah. You seem to enjoy yourself. You're very active at our club. I know that. Um, and, you know, you've always helped out at, you know, running events and things like that. You know, what drives you to, to get involved? Because it's sometimes a pretty thankless task. Um, look, I do, I do a lot of, um, while I'm fit, I enjoy doing and helping people. I've got a beautiful 86-year-old widowed neighbour. Um, I constantly are doing little jobs for her and uh, helping her out. I've helped Sonia out with quite a lot of maintenance around her house. Um, been certainly very involved in field managing and now I've been um, looking after the facility, so I'm doing quite a few jobs down there and getting them done. But um, Big Phil nicknamed me the nuclear-powered geriatric mm. and um, because everybody else was sweltering over in Italy at the world. It was 40 degrees and they were all hiding in under the shade of the trees. Not me. I was up and down looking at the scores and getting them uh, reported over on Facebook, Facebook back to the the uh, the world and um, and over and getting some more drinks and whatever else. I was always on the go. So when I came back and I jumped the fence rather than going through a gate, um, Andrew Palmer's wife, Swatonia from New Zealand, says, Ah, oh, Norm, she says, no wonder they call you the nuclear-powered geriatric. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I, was the first time I'd heard that nickname, but uh, it stuck. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've, you know, ever since I've known you, you're not one to do anything slowly. You know, you're, all, there's all, you're always on the move. You know, well, it, it'd be hard to pin you down. There's a lot of things to do, Andrew. All those women over the years when you were chasing, they would have been able to get you because you're always moving. Oh, look, I'm, we're talking about aeroplanes here, mate, not... Oh, you know, I was just, you know, <laughs> yeah. thinking laterally a little uh, bit. Because that was uh, your... Yeah. It, it was, well, I'm blaming the women for taking you away from the hobby. You could have been a world champ if you just focused. You know, it's, uh, look, I, I could have done that had I not been doing pylon and just concentrated and gone with Jeff Tracy. Yes, I could have, um, could have done that because I've won a few... We, aerobatic events over my time. But um, anyway, there's other priorities, running state championships for the BMAA and everything else. And, that, yeah, that, look, it's a matter of balancing your life, mate, and I'm not I'm not dissatisfied with my uh, what I've done throughout life. Really yeah. am not. Uh, you know, we, we touched on this earlier when we were talking about how aeromodelling can play a big part in, in people's lives. And, and I dare say, you know, do you reckon your life would have looked a bit different if you weren't weren't aeromodelling? Oh, uh, uh, yes. I might have been a quiet, shy sort of a guy. <laughs> I doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't going to ever happen. <laughs> well, I said might have been. Yeah, well, there you go. that's just a good dream in your head, but uh, that was never going to happen. Uh, no. 
No, look, the camaraderie is the most important of uh, it all. It's it's not about the flying. It's but you know just enjoying and uh, each other's company. Yeah, that's true. Now, final question, and it's a question that I, yep. I, I ask everybody and it's a question that everybody can't wait to hear, and that is, what has been your favourite model of all time? And try to pick one. Wow. Every, I said this to Rolly last week. He said, just pick one, and he ended up with about four different models. I just want one. Oh, he's thinking hard. I can hear the breathing. Yeah, look. Because the Northerner has been with me for forty odd years, that that would have, but they're, they're nowhere near as nice a plane um, to fly as what the current models are. And my le- my leader is a magnificent aeroplane to fly. So um, I would have to say the leader followed by the Northerner. Oh, he- you're the first person to do the first, the one two. Like, <laughs> well, I'm just trying to sneak one in on your Andrew. <laughs> yeah, but I, that's that's a new way of thinking about it. Most people will sit there and say, "Oh, well, this has been really good, and this I like this one as well, and this one was great." And as far as gliders go, this was my favourite. But you've gone the one and the two. You know, oh gee, that's well done. That's the first. Well, Norm. It's really been a pleasure having you on the podcast. It's been your stories have been really entertaining, and I, I you know, I really appreciate them. That um. Like you said, it's not just about flying model aircraft, and a lot of your stories are sort of related to the aero modelling scene. But it's about people and stuff like that. And um, so you you you've proven that point to us through all your stories. So really, thank you for joining me. Uh look, Andrew, it's my privilege to have been invited. So thank you, and you keep it up, mate. About to leave, already packing. Come with me. I'm not really asking, we'll get away to a place where we don't know. Big thank you to Norm Morris for joining me. Uh, well, that's it. That's all I've got for you uh, this week. Um, been a good week. I've been really busy with work, which is good and bad. Good that uh, I have work and bad that I have a lot of it and it consumes a lot of my time. But uh, looking forward to getting out there. A few friends have... Uh, planned a bit of a trip to get out to the country to go for a fly which i'm going to try to make uh i'm really looking forward to getting back into flying some of my big birds hope you are as well don't forget to subscribe to the flat out rc stuff the website uh sorry not the, the website you can go to the website flatoutrc.com.au if you want to send me a message uh still always on the lookout for guests um people do send requests through uh, the thing is, if you request somebody, make sure they're, they're sort of computer savvy because I want to connect with them over the computer. Uh, that's the best way to get better audio quality and stuff like that. So if they're not on you know, computer savvy, it gets harder for me to, to talk to them. But please send any requests. And anybody that's overseas, anybody that's overseas, anybody in the US market, UK, Europe, that want to hear somebody's story from, from your um, territory, I'm happy to reach out to them and invite them on because um, I'm trying to spread the word. And I know there's a lot of people from overseas that listen to this podcast because I can tell where you're from through the data. Not your names, uh, but I can tell the cities and stuff like that. So a big thank you to to everybody who who joins and listens to this podcast from all around the world. Really appreciate you listening to this. And I'll be back next week with another guest. I've already booked them in. We'll do the interview shortly and then... uh, have it out to you next week. Thanks a lot.